Welcome to the Victory Baptist Church Sermon Podcast, where we take the Word of God and preach a timely message from the pulpit of Victory Baptist Church of Fallon, Nevada. But uh, Hidden Heroes, Unveiling the Women of Christ's Lineage. Uh, today, we're going to begin a series of five messages from the genealogy of Jesus Christ and take a look at the five women mentioned through the genealogy of Matthew chapter 1. Each week, we're going to look at one of the women, their stories, and how they fit into the story of Jesus Christ and the significance it has on the gospel message that Christ came to live and to speak of. And so in Matthew chapter 1, we're going to read those first three verses. Every week, we'll look at these same three verses to begin with, and then we'll start to understand uh, who this is talking about. Actually, we'll go a little bit further, but today we want to look at these first three uh, because we see the first woman named in, gene- in the genealogy of Christ. It says, The book of the generations of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham begat Isaac, and Isaac begat Jacob, and Jacob begat Judas and his brethren. And Judas begat Pharez and Zerah of, Th- of Tamar, and Pharez begat uh, Esram, and Esram begot Aram. And so we see the first woman that's named in the genealogy of Jesus Christ is a woman by the name of Tamar. And Tamar's story is a, a story of scandalous sin that requires scandalous grace. You know, here's the thing I like about the Bible. Uh, a lot of times when we read through the Bible, we, we read familiar stories, but God did not take the word of God and just make it a a picture of everything that goes perfectly, right? Uh, in fact, I've often joked and said um, that uh, that the Bible, that there's stories in the Bible that would make a perfect soap opera, right? And there are. There are stories in the Word of God that would make a perfect soap opera because here's the reality. The Bible does not shy away from talking about difficult things, It does not shy away from giving difficult stories that sometimes we might even read and be like, that's in the Bible? I can't believe that's in the Bible. This is one of those stories that we're going to come to today. And maybe you're like, I've never heard of Tamar. Well, you're about to find out a whole lot about Tamar. How many of you guys have heard of Judah? Okay. How many of you have heard of Tamar? All right. A lot less of you have heard of Tamar than you had of Judah. Well, because we know there's the tribe of Judah. We know it's one of um, uh, 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 Isaac's sons who later became Israel. And, and, and so we know um, that this is one of his sons. But, you know, I'm glad that the, that the Bible gives us the hard accounts because some of our lives have been just as messy as the accounts of the Bible. Some of your lives, you would say, man, my life has been a messy life. I've gone through a whole lot of things. And you might even be at this place in your life right now where you're like, my life is a mess. And this is something I shared with our men yesterday. Can I tell you something? There's some people that think that when they come to church, you have to put on a false front. You have to paint on a happy face and act like everything's all right. When you come to Victory Baptist Church, if everything's not all right, it's okay to come and not have everything all right. There's nobody expects you to come in here and be a fake. We want you to be genuine. We want you to be real. We want you to be who you are and what you're going through because Christ wants to meet you where you are. Now, that doesn't mean that we stay where we are. God wants to change our lives and to make our lives better. But you do not have to come to Victory Baptist Church and fake it till you make it. When you come to this church, be genuine in who you are. 
that's okay. That is fine for you to do so. And nobody's going to look and say, well, why'd they come to church? Their life's a mess. No, this is why you should be coming to church. And all of those who paint on happy faces when we're not happy and are faking everything when we come in, we're not honoring Jesus, we're dishonoring him because we're not being honest with the things that are going on in our lives. That's why I always try to be very honest as a pastor. That's why a few weeks ago I said, hey, listen, I was here at church on Sunday, but my heart wasn't because we were going through a lot of hard things. I share with you guys personal things because I want you to understand if I can be genuine with you as a pastor, that means that you can be genuine with me and everybody else in this building where you are and the things that you're going through. Understand that because the Bible is full of messy things and messy stories and those people had to come to Christ. Why shouldn't the church also be full of messy stories and messy things that Christ wants to fix? Amen? When you hear the word scandalous, you probably would not think it as an adjective that would describe grace. When we hear that word, we probably think that it's completely opposite to what the word grace means. Because as in our title, we most often associate the word scandalous to describe sin. We typically would say that we would describe grace as amazing or awesome. A grace is the undeserved favor of God. Grace cannot be earned. It is freely offered to us by God to all those who will receive it. So how would we say that this is scandalous? The word scandalous means causing general public outrage by a perceived offense against morality or law. All right, that's what we would call a scandal. We see scandals happen all the time, right? Uh, whether it's churches or the government or just things in our society, there's scandals always going on. And, and we would say, yeah, that's ca causing public outrage. I, I, I'm a little upset this morning. I'm a Florida State fan. And they snubbed them out of the playoffs after going 13-0. and 0. It's scandalous. <laughs> you know. But uh, by the given definition, today we will see how God's grace offered through Jesus Christ could be considered scandalous. In Jesus' day... The religious people were continually outraged by Jesus' perceived disregard for the religious elite's interpretation of the law. Today, we have people that say that those of us who preach salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, are preaching a cheap grace that expresses some, some uh, that it, they express sometimes with much outrage that we make salvation too easy. Somebody needs to work for their salvation. No. It is a free gift that God has given us. It is that response that we have to the Holy Spirit's drawing, to God's drawing, and to Jesus' drawing in our lives that brings us salvation. It's not about anything that we do. It's about everything that He has done. It's scandalous that we would think that God would give us that grace freely. We didn't deserve it. But that's what makes it grace. Let's look at the story of Tamar and see how God has uh, uh, created something beautiful out of a story so messy. And so we're going to go to uh, Genesis chapter 38. Now, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to warn you. I know we have some teenagers in here, and there's some things in here that, uh, you know, you might say, well, I can't believe that's in the Bible. And we're not going to go into details. You will understand as we read through this, especially if you're a mature adult, exactly kind of what's going on. I'm not going to exploit it. I'm not going to go uh, into further details uh, of what's happening. But this is a account in the Bible that is important for today because we said Tamar is in the lineage of Christ. 
So this is important, and this story is important. So we come to uh, Genesis chapter 38. We come to a place where, where uh, Judah has chosen a wife for his oldest son, Ur. So the first thing I want us to see this morning is I want us to see a broken promise. And underneath a broken promise, we see a broken marriage. In Genesis chapter 38, verses 6 and 7. All right, Genesis 38, verses 6 and 7. And Judah took a wife for Ur, his firstborn, whose name was Tamar. In the New Testament, it was spelled with a, a T-H, but it's the same name, okay? Uh, uh, um, so he gives a wife named Tamar. And Ur, Judah's firstborn, was wicked in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord slew him. All right, so could you imagine this? This is how marriage starts out, right? Uh, Judah picks out a wife for his son, Ur. They get married, and God says, you know what? You're wicked. You're dead. Wow. Wow, that's, that's, pretty, that's pretty rough, right? And, and here's the thing. When we think about it, you have to look at the entire uh, uh, family of Judah. Judah had done, done a lot of bad things. He, he had made a lot of bad choices when it came to the rest of his, his uh, uh, family and, and what he did with Joseph and everything else. And so you have to understand that God had been very merciful to Judah, and Judah should have raised his kids in such a way that they were righteous before God, but he didn't, and his son was wicked. And God said, you know what? I want nothing to do with this wickedness. I'm going to slay him. All right, and so the Jewish people, they followed a custom that seems very strange to us today. If the eldest brother within a Jewish family died, and his wife did not bear a son to pass down his lineage... The next eldest brother was taken to his brother's wife uh, and, and, and was taken in, and, and she was to bear a son by the brother of the person she was married to. And when she bears a son, that would pass down the lineage of Judah continually, or Ur continually, because he was the eldest. All right, and so um, she would bear a son uh, with this with his brother's wife and the property and the lineage would be passed on to the wife and her son and we see this practice in this account so this is what's going on all right so Ur dies and so then the next thing we see is we see a broken lineage Ur dies and so Judah does what is a Jewish custom and says all right well Ur died and so Tamar you're to marry the next oldest brother again we don't do this it's strange to us. It's a customs thing that they did. We don't do it, but it's still important for us to understand this because it was also something that God gave that said this is how the lineage of that brother is going to continue to pass down from generation to generation because while this isn't law yet, it becomes law later on according to the Jewish law. All right, so there we see a broken lineage, and we're going to continue there in verse number 8. And, uh, and, and again, this is one of those accounts where it's like, okay, well, we're not going to go into detail with that. We understand what happened, all right? And Judah said unto Onan, go in unto thy brother's wife and marry her and raise up seed to thy brother. And Onan knew that the seed should not be his, and it came to pass when he went into his brother's wife that he spilled it on the ground, lest that he should give seed to his brother. And the thing which he did displeased the Lord, wherefore he slew him also. Right, because he was commanded to do something, and he violated that. He didn't obey what the command was, and so God slew him. This is messy, right? This is a messy situation. 
Onan refused to fulfill the custom that was given to him and, and was uh, commanded by God. And because of his refusal to obey, God also killed him because of his wickedness. Wow. This just sounds like God just likes to kill everybody off. Maybe you're sitting in a messy situation. God has been merciful to you. God doesn't just look at sin and say, all of a sudden I'm just going to judge every sin at one time and, and, and take care of these things. But these were specific commands that God had given. These were specific things that these men should have grown up knowing and understanding and obeying God. And God said, you know what? You're not going to obey. You're not going to do what I do, ask you to do. You're not going to be righteous. Then I'm going to cut your life short. So then uh, we come to the, the third part of this story. We see a broken commitment. So look at verses 11 through 14. Then said Judah to Tamar, his daughter-in-law, remain a widow at thy father's house till Shelah, my son, be grown. For he said, lest preadventure he die also, as his brethren did. And Tamar went and dwelt in her father's house. So first of all, in that verse 11, it almost seems like Judah's blaming it on Tamar that his other two sons died. And he says, I'm going to send you away, and I want you to go to your father's house. Part of the reason why is because um, uh, um, Shayla is not old enough to be married yet. Okay? And so, uh, and Tamar went and dwelled in her father's house. And in the process of time, the daughter of Shua, Judah's wife, died. And Judah was comforted and went up into the sheep uh, shearer's house, uh, sheep shearers to Timnath, he and his friend Hira, and uh, Dulamite, uh, the Dulamite. And it was told Tamar, saying, Behold, thy father-in-law goeth up to uh, Timnath to shear his sheep. And she put on her widow's garments off from her and covered her with a veil and wrapped herself and sat in an open place, which is by the way of Timnath. For she saw Sheila was grown and she was not given unto him. To wife. So now Shayla has grown up, and Judah had promised that when Shayla was old, what, what, what was going to happen? That he would call for her to come back and marry. And so she, uh, she sees this happening. The Jewish tradition was to continue on to the next closest relative. So after the second brother was killed, um, uh, but at this time, the third son of Judah was too young to fulfill his responsibility to Tamar. So Judah tells Tamar to return home to her father, and when Shayla's old enough that she, would, uh, that she would be given to him for marriage. Time passes, and word comes on to Tamar that Judah's coming to her area to have his sheep sheared. She believes that Ju Judah has come to fulfill his promise and that she is now to marry Shayla. Uh, but Judah completely ignores her and breaks the promise that he's given her. So Judah is in sin now. Judah said, hey, I promised my, my son uh, uh, Shayla to you. She hears that he's coming, so she takes off the widow's garments because she believes that as Judah comes by, what's going to happen? That Judah's going to grab her and that he's going to give her to his uh, third son, Shayla. But instead, Judah completely ignores her, walks right by her, is not fulfilling the command that God had promised the actions of Judah are absolutely scandalous in direct in disobedience to God's directions, and they've driven Tamar to take a step into the unthinkable, scandalous action. The, the, the second thing we see this morning is we see a scandalous scheme. We see a scandalous scheme. 
after Tamar sees that she's been completely rebuffed by Judah, she schemes to how she will get revenge on Judah and the broken promise and dreams that he has caused. You, you see, because as a woman in Bible days, it wasn't like today where, you know, hey, that person didn't marry me. I'll go find somebody else to marry. In Bible days, it didn't work that way. Marriages were all arranged. Right? And so she didn't have the freedom to marry anyone other than Judah's sons. That's the way it was. Or a relative of Judah. Very much in, in those days, women were possessions, not people. And that's sad. That's sad. But that was the reality of what's going on here. It's important to understand that historical context because then you'll understand what's going on in the mind of Tamar because it's not like she can just go marry uh, Joe, Joe down the road. This is her only hope to fulfill her purpose in bringing a son to pass on the lineage of Judah and Ur. But nothing's being done. And so she removes the widow's clothing that she's been wearing and she dresses in the way of a harlot and puts herself in, in, uh, in the open so that she'll catch Judah's attention. She appealed to the flesh and pride of Judah. Look at verses 15 through 18. When Judah saw her, he thought her to be a harlot because she had covered her face and he turned unto her by the way, and said, Go to, I pray thee, let me come in unto thee. For he knew not that she was his daughter-in-law. And she said, What wilt thou give me, that thou mayest come in unto me? And he said, I'll send thee a kid from the flock. And she said, Wilt thou give me a pledge, till thou send it? And, 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 so, um, and so we see, and, and, and he says, What pledge shall I give thee? And she said, Thy signet, or the ring. And thy bracelet and thy staff that's in thy hand and he gave it to her and he came in to unto her and she conceived by him again messy story right this is in the bible what that's in the bible i can't believe it yes it's in the bible it's a it's a very messy situation tamar knew exactly how to enact her revenge on judah she knew that he had a fleshly appetite for women and would do anything to satisfy so she dressed as a harlot, and Judah took the bait. Now, let me just stop right here and say that both Judah's and Tamar's thinking is wrong here. All right? Someone to throw Tamar under the bus and talk about how wicked her scheme was, but her scheme was also driven by the injustice of Judah. Again, remember, there's no hopes and dreams without... Judah passing his son on to his daughter-in-law. He was also absolutely wrong because he had trapped Tamar in an unjust circumstance. Her survival depended on fulfilling the promise of being brought into Judah's family by marriage to his sons and had fallen through in every way. Because remember, until she bears a son... That land will never belong to her that was promised to her. Because that land gets passed on to the son. That would be her livelihood. That's what's going to be taking care of her. I don't think her father was like, oh, yeah, I'm glad that you're home. No, aren't you supposed to be married and have a child? 
And aren't you supposed to already own land with that, with that man and that child? So there's a lot of injustice going on here. So Tamar decided that she would take care of it one way or another. Even if she had to scheme her way into having Judah fulfill his promise. So in order for the fleshly desire of Judah to be fulfilled, she tells him she'll fulfill it only if he gives her his signet, bracelet, and staff as a promise to send after her later. Because he said, hey, I'm going to give you a kid goat to allow me to come into you and have a relationship with you. Well, you don't have it right now, so give me something so I know this is the promise. And then we see an admission of a failed fulfillment. If you continue to read through Genesis chapter 38, you find out that Tamar goes back to dressing in her widow's garments. Judah sends the lamb by the hands of his servant to give to the harlot and have his possessions returned to him because those were important things. The signet and the bracelet and the staff were all important. These were things that we've passed down from generation to generation. So she knew what she was doing. She knew exactly why she asked for those things. So, the person he assumed was a harlot was nowhere to be found. After three months, Judah learns that Tamar is pregnant, which could only happen by her breaking the covenant that she had had to marry Judas's youngest, uh, Judah's youngest son. So he sends his servant to retrieve her and to have her burned to death for her broken promise. But when she arrives, she carries in her hand the signet, the bracelet, and the staff. And tells Judah that the one who owned these three things was the father of the child that she was carrying. And then look what Judah says in verse number 26. And Judah acknowledged them and said, She hath been more righteous than I. Because that I gave her not to Shelah, my son, and he knew her again no more. Whoa, this is scandalous. Soap opera stuff right here, right? You see what's going on. The Bible doesn't shy away from this. You see, there's a lot of people that think, oh, well, the Bible just makes everything pretty and great. No. God allows us to see what really happens in the hearts of humans. There's a reason he does that, though, because it's the heart of humans, and he knows that many of us do scandalous things as well throughout our life. Judah acknowledges that Tamar has been more righteous than him because she, put, she was put into the position that she was because of his failure to fulfill his promise. So what does all this have to do with the lineage of Christ? How does this come back to Christ? It's a picture of God's grace towards us. Number three, scandalous sin requires scandalous grace. When I look at this account, I think, how on earth would God allow this to be part of Jesus' lineage? How could this be part of who Jesus is? Oh, by the way, you know what else Tamar is? She's not a Jew. She's a Gentile. And in fact, as we look over the next five weeks, four 
out of five of the people in Jesus' genealogy are Gentiles. That's pretty amazing. Matthew points these things out in Matthew, in the book of Matthew, because I believe that he's trying to get the Jews to understand that they're not as pure and as righteous as they think they are. Because they know that Jesus is supposed to come from the line of David, that the Messiah is supposed to come from the line of David. Of course, now, mind you, the Pharisees and everybody else uh, at this point in time reject who Jesus is. But those Jews who did accept Jesus as Messiah and as their Savior realized that Jesus Christ didn't just come for the Jews. He came for everyone. When we look at this account, it's amazing to think about this. This is such a scandalous story. So scandalous, in fact, that many people shy away from reading, let alone preaching through this passage. What on earth are we looking at that for, Pastor? It's so scandalous. But these are the very people that Jesus came to earth to redeem. When Jesus was born, he came to change the course of history and re bring redemption to those who many thought were non-redeemable. I mean, we look at this story and we think, there's no redeeming this. There's no hope here. But there was. She became a part of the greatest story that there's ever been in the history of all of time. One look at the life of Christ and you see that he came to redeem the unredeemable. Jesus loving the tax collectors. Jesus rescuing the harlots. Forgiving the woman caught in adultery. Giving eternal life to the woman at the well. And all the men that she previously had relationships with. Forgiving a thief on a cross. And we don't look at those as too shameful to speak or preach about. And when we take a look at our own lives and see all that Christ has forgiven us of. It shouldn't surprise us. That God. Included Judah and Tamar in the lineage of Christ. Because God also includes those who come to know him as Savior in his family. Judah, a Jew, was a picture that Christ came to save God's chosen people from their sins. Tamar, a Gentile, was a picture that Christ came to save we who are not Jews from our sins. John 3.16 didn't say for God so loved the Jews. It didn't say that God so loved the righteous. It didn't say that God so loved the perfect. It said that God so loved the world. That he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. God includes the scandalous stories in the Bible because he realizes that scandalous sin requires scandalous grace. The Jews hated Jesus for his message. 
The Jews hated that he wanted to bring the message of salvation to all people. The Jews, the, especially the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the, the, the religious Jews, thought that they had everything together and that Jesus wasn't who he said he was. They got mad when he would claim to be the Son of God, when he would say, the Father has business for me to do. He has things that he wants me to do. I must be about my Father's business. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. The Jews hated it because he went against everything that they thought would make people righteous they thought the only thing that would make people righteous was for them uh, uh, for those people to follow the laws that they had interpreted the way that they wanted to interpret and then tell them this is how you live your life in order to get to heaven in order to have righteousness with God but Jesus came and said I came to seek and to save that which was lost whosoever believeth in me should not perish whosoever will may come he came to offer salvation to all mankind when the Jews only wanted righteousness with God and said that everyone else was not righteous. His scandalous grace has been brought to us who are full of scandalous sin. His grace went against the law of the religious people. That's what made it scandalous. While we could describe God's grace as amazing, I really sometimes think that the word scandalous fits even better. I know that my sin should have damned me to hell. But Christ did something outrageous in my life. He offered someone who doesn't deserve eternal life, saving grace and abundant mercy. How could I describe this any better than scandalous and outrageous grace? Have you experienced this scandalous grace in your life? If God can take a soap opera like the life of Tamar and make it a story of beauty and grace, how much more can he take your story? And turn it from a scandalous story of sin and in, t in turn, turn it into an outrageous story of his grace. If you don't know him as your savior, won't you come today to accept the gift of grace that he has offered to you? If you do know him as your savior, in just a moment when we have invitation, why don't you come and thank him? For how he took your story from scandalous and said, I want to give you outrageous grace. And then start living in the way that God wants you to live. It's a wonderful thing. It's a beautiful thing. Romans 12.1 says, I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable unto God which is your reasonable service. God, if you know Christ as your Savior, He has saved you from so much. So why wouldn't you give everything to Him? Why wouldn't you lay your life down and say, you know what, God, I'm giving my life as a living sacrifice because it's the only reasonable thing that I can do because you gave your life for me who didn't deserve it. And He wants to use your life in amazing ways. Let him do it.
Can I tell you, there's a whole lot more happiness in serving Jesus than there is in serving the world. Oh, I, I didn't say it's not happy to serve the world. Oh, there's definitely some fun in sinning and all those things, but the Bible also tells us in Romans 6.23 that the wages of sin is death. That was written to Christians, by the way. The wages of our sin is death. When we decide that we want to follow sin, the end is going to be destruction. But the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. And you know when that eternal life started? The moment you came to know Christ as your Savior. And while we won't understand the full realities of the eternal life until we get to heaven, that means that the life that God has given you that is eternal Start at the moment that you came to know Christ as your Savior. So why would you not choose to live in the life that he's given you and choose to live in sin and death? Why would you choose that? 